if we were wrong in sending students home prematurely, we would have uh, disrupted a lot of people's lives. Uh, we would have incurred a lot of needless expense. But if we were wrong in not sending students home prematurely, people would die. And so uh, the decision actually wasn't that difficult. Larry Bacow is the president of Harvard, one of the most experienced leaders in American higher education. Bacow has served as the president of Tufts and the chancellor of MIT. On this week's episode, in conversation with Paloma Strelitz, Zoya Saroy, and Judd Olenoff, he discusses leading Harvard through COVID-19, the pandemic's effect on the university, and the complexities of reopening the campus. This is The Dive. We bring Harvard faculty to you for conversations on the most pressing issues in the news. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, happy to help. Before we sort of get started, do you have any questions? No, nope. uh, just when's this all gonna end? When's this all gonna end? Um, I think it's scheduled to end uh, at quarter past ten. No, no, I'm oh, sorry. I'm right. the coronavirus. <laughs> crisis. I, I, I figured you were going to tell me, Paloma. I was very curious. I was like, Paloma knows the answer to all of this. Yeah, but this is this is why I showed up today. I, I was going to get all of my uncertainties resolved. No, unfortunately, I don't bring that level of certainty. Um, uh, so, let, should we begin? Sure. Great. President Bacal. In March, both you and your wife tested positive for COVID-19. What symptoms did you experience? And are you now fully recovered? And also, did you feel it gave you greater insight into understanding the risks of the virus spreading? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, our symptoms uh, began with a cough. Uh, Adele actually had had a cough for about a month uh, and had gone to the doctor and been examined and, you know, uh, her doctor told her it was nothing, she was fine. Um, cough persisted, then it went away, uh, in her case, and I came down with the cough, and then we both came down with fever. Uh, and the fever was followed by chills and muscle aches, um, and you know it felt like the flu. Uh, I happened to uh, have an autoimmune condition, which I knew made me susceptible uh, to this disease. Uh, and I uh, had been immunosuppressed. So I called my doctor and uh, he said, uh, you should uh, get tested. So uh, we get our medical care at, uh, at Tufts. Um, and so we drove ourselves down to the hospital and got in line uh, at their walk-in clinic and got tested and then found out that uh, we were positive. Um, it, it drove home the reality of the situation immediately to us. Uh, and I think candidly to a lot of other people, we decided immediately that we would uh, share the news because we wanted others to take this quite seriously. And when we came down with it, we were, I think one of the first, uh, you know, 15 or so folks in the Harvard community to be tested um, positive uh, for the virus. So, uh, you know, it emphasized to me at least, um, 
how contagious this disease was, we had been socially isolating for 10 days where we had seen literally no one before we were diagnosed, but the disease can have up to a two week latency period. So it just underscored the need um, to be vigilant and um, for people to understand the degree to which this the disease was contagious uh, and to take appropriate steps for social isolation so we can contain it. Students here at Harvard are leaving campus for spring break this weekend, and they don't know when or if they'll return this spring. Students just got word this morning that they'll be transitioned fully to online courses after the spring recess and asked to stay away from school to prevent further outbreak of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Harvard was, of course, one of the first institutions in the U.S. to transition to online learning. When did the university start monitoring the situation and what information did you have that prompted you to take such early action? So we had been monitoring the situation since um, early January um, when, you know, things broke out in, in China. And we have plenty of faculty and students who travel to and from China. Um, students who are coming back from, you know, from winter break who had been in China. So we were cognizant of the risk of spread um, of, this, of this virus. Um, our uh, faculty in the School of Public Health, as well as in the medical school, were watching it closely. We were also watching um, outbreaks in Italy and Spain and other countries. Um, we were cognizant of what was going on in Washington State, where there was an outbreak at the University of Washington on their campus. Uh, so, uh, we've been paying very, very close attention, and we were monitoring uh, individual cases in Massachusetts. And uh, during a period leading up to our announcement, if I recall the numbers correctly, the, the reported cases in Massachusetts over a four-day period went from 13 to 28 to 42 to 91, uh, which is um, clearly an exponential growth. Uh, curve, um, which have been repeated in other countries, and not only that, um, you know, uh, expands <laughs> quite quickly. So we were faced with a decision. Uh, we were coming up on spring break. We knew that our students uh, would scatter during spring break, um, and many of them, in fact, would, uh, you know, go to places where the virus was more prevalent. But also that students at spring break tend to socialize and do things. Uh, which uh, can uh, help to pass on the virus. Let me just put it that way. So uh, the timing of spring break really forced a decision because we were concerned that if students left campus and then returned after campus, we could have a very, by that point, we could have a very severe outbreak. And in fact, if you just do the math on an exponential growth curve um, in the two weeks, roughly, in which it would, take them to leave and then come back, we were looking at potentially um, thousands of cases in Massachusetts. So we decided at that point that we needed uh, to encourage students not to return to campus. And so can you talk us through the exact kind of decision-making process? Like whose expertise were you drawing on? Um, did Harvard assemble a crisis management team? Who needed to agree on the course of action? So. Uh, we had assembled a crisis management team. That team had been meeting for several weeks. 
Um, one of the things which we were doing is we were in anticipation that we might have to move the campus to online instruction. Uh, we were standing up, if you will, um, our uh, capacity uh, to, to go to Zoom, um, uh, securing the necessary bandwidth, um, making sure that we had the technology infrastructure that could support it, um, starting to imagine what we would do to train faculty um, and students so they could get online. At the same time, we also envisioned that if we had to go to remote instruction, we might also have to work remotely. So we started to test all of our systems uh, to make sure that we could operate them remotely, accounts payable, accounts receivable, basic you know, computer security systems, all the things which we need to actually run the university. Uh, we started testing those. Um, and uh, there was uh, literally daily planning that was going on. Uh, uh, the ultimate decision was mine. Um, it was made in consultation uh, with a group that we had put together, a scientific advisory group, which had been uh, chaired um, uh, by John Wen, who is our director of Harvard University Health Services. Um, both Katie Lapp, our executive vice president, and Alan Garber, our provost, played major roles in this. Katie chaired the crisis management team. Alan, who's both a physician and an economist and who had written about uh, management of pandemics uh, professionally. Uh, both of them greatly informed you know, my thinking um, on this. So I think I had access to some of the best um, you know, scientific evidence. Uh, amidst, you know, on our faculty, we have some of the world's foremost experts in infectious disease, um, virology, epidemiology, uh, public health. We were talking to them. Um, and uh, we were monitoring the situation um, both in the United States and in other parts of the world. And um, given the timing, it seemed imperative that we take quick action. I should also add that we were quite cognizant that if we acted when we did, we would be severely criticized by those who believed that we were acting rashly and prematurely. Uh, and, uh, and I got a lot of feedback to that effect once we made the announcement. My response to those people was to say that I hope that they were correct and that I was wrong. Um, but the way I saw it, there was an asymmetry to the cost of being wrong. Um, if we were wrong in sending students home prematurely, we would have uh, disrupted a lot of people's lives. Uh, we would have incurred a lot of needless expense. But if we were wrong in not sending students home prematurely, people would die. And so the decision actually wasn't that difficult. And so evidently you have this enormous responsibility when it comes to Harvard as a community, but do you also feel that Harvard has a responsibility to kind of act early to set an example to other universities? Well, in this particular case, um, I thought that if we acted as Harvard, it would actually make it easier for other institutions to act. I knew others were um, also concerned um, about the evolution of the virus, um, the spread. Um, we probably had access to as good of information as existed in the world. And 
uh, I thought that if we took it seriously, others would as well. So we were aware that that by acting as we did, we might make it easier for other institutions to do the same. Uh, it, it was interesting how quickly uh, others did act and how soon the criticism died down. Um, and as the sort of crisis has evolved, how has Harvard been coordinating with Cambridge, Boston and Massachusetts? Can you kind of give us a glimpse into that? Uh, sure. Well, you know, I've been in touch with the uh, city manager of Cambridge, the mayor of Boston, the governor of Massachusetts on a pretty regular basis. Um, uh, before, before I made the call uh, to send students home, um, I talked to all three of them and let them know what I was doing and also suggested that it, I wouldn't be surprised if other institutions over time did the same. And recognized that there was likely to be a severe economic impact um, on the city um, and the region uh, and, the, and the state as well. So um, we've tried to coordinate with them. We've tried to be a resource as well in uh, providing information to the state uh, to inform decisions. Um, one of the things which we did early on is we forged a partnership with the Guangzhou uh, Institute for Respiratory Health in China. Uh, to do research on the coronavirus uh, and to collaborate in the development of uh, rapid diagnostic tests, therapies, um, potential work on vaccines. Uh, that's work which is based at Harvard, um, but which engages um, the entire um, Massachusetts uh, life sciences uh, community. So it's Harvard, MIT, BU, Tufts, um, University of Massachusetts, the Broad Institute, the Reagan Institute, all of our affiliated teaching hospitals, um, as well as the Massachusetts um, biotech and big pharma uh, communities as well. So we are working together on all these issues. And so given the level of expertise that is in Cambridge, can you share some further examples of how Harvard's academic community has mobilized to address the challenges caused by COVID-19? Well, in a whole variety of ways. Uh, for example, um, we have uh, faculty um, who are working on rapid diagnostic tests um, at the Bees Institute, um, at the Broad Institute. Uh, we've dramatically increased our testing capacity through their efforts. Um, we have uh, the two first vac potential vaccines that went into human trials um, came out of laboratories in our Massachusetts, uh, you know, consortium uh, for pathogen uh, readiness, um, Harvard-affiliated um, organizations. Um, we have people who are doing work on the basic science um, of this, um, understanding how it is that the virus actually affects the lungs and why it does, it does it as it does. Um, we have faculty who are working on um, developing more um, effective personal protective equipment. Um, so faculty in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences um, who develop rapid uh, prototyping for making um, the plastic disposable face masks that you see in, in hospitals that's now moved into industrial production. Um, you know, I could go on in almost every possible dimension of this, including you know, faculty, uh, Jim Stock in the economics department, who's working with faculty in the School of Public Health to try and model 
um, the intersection of epidemiology and macroeconomics as we think about strategies uh, for you know bringing the economy back, but that that are well integrated with our assumptions and and best thinking about how this um, uh, epidemic unfolds over time, given distant different social distancing strategies as well as different levels of economic activity. So trying to identify optimal paths uh, to restarting the economy while minimizing the public health impacts. These schools have millions, in some cases, billions of dollars in, in you know, fundraising that they do. They have a pot of money. Why can't they help the students out a little? But they argue that you know, they can't just use that money for anything they want. President Bacow, shifting to the financial impact on the university. For listeners who've heard about the endowment but aren't familiar with the finances of the university, could you explain how the endowment relates to the operating budget and why a market decline affects a university like Harvard? Sure. Um, first of all, uh, the endowment in some ways is a misnomer. The university has 13,000 separate endowments. So when somebody gives a gift to endow a chair at the Kennedy School, that is a single endowment. And those resources are devoted to supporting that chair. Or if somebody gives a gift to endow a fellowship at the Graduate School of Design. Um, in fact, um, Paloma, I believe that you are a, um, um, a Loeb Fellow. Correct. So family, the Loeb family endowed your program. And so those resources are dedicated to support those specific activities. The collective money is managed as a pool um, but it consists of 13,000 separate individual endowments. So most of the endowment is highly restricted. We cannot take money from uh, the Loeb Fellowship and redirect it to support undergraduate financial aid, for example, or to cover an operating deficit at the medical school. Um, so the endowment itself is highly restricted. In the aggregate, the endowment supports about 35% of the university's total operating budget. Um, and the money is there to support these activities in perpetuity. When you endow something, the idea is it is there and those resources are to support the Loeb Fellowships forever. What that means is that we need to be good stewards of that money. Um, and typically, the way in which we do that, and it's not just Harvard, it's every other institution that finds itself in this position, is to draw down only that amount of the income um, such that we um, can maintain the purchasing power of the endowment for future generations. So um, if, if the endowment earns, let's say, 8%, um, and we expect inflation to be 3%, then to maintain the purchasing power of the endowment, the most that we can distribute is 5% each year. Otherwise, future generations have less than we have. Um, and so investment returns influence the extent to which we can spend the endowment. And in uh, what we've seen, you know, at a time like this is uh, as values fall 
the amount that we can distribute from the endowment falls as well. Uh, we try and smooth that over time. So and we have a formula for, for how we calculate this. So a big spike either up or down uh, in the endowment in a given year doesn't result in a massive change in the distribution. So there's a smoothing function. But generally, um, as the value of the endowment declines, what we can distribute from it declines as well. Some think that the endowment, that we can just dip into it to make up for any losses. Um, but again, uh, we are restricted in what we can use the money for, given what it's been given for. And also we're restricted by our fiduciary obligation that limits our capacity to spend it down um, in ways that would uh, make it not available to, to support future operations for future generations. So it sounds like the amount that can be drawn is in effect limited by the fact that you know you want to keep the underlying value of the endowment intact for future generations. Are there scenarios where the university um, would consider drawing more and would consider that underlying premise? So what we do is we we try and operate within a band of distribution. Okay, so we we try to make sure that we, we spend at least 4% of the value of the endowment this year, and we try to make sure that we spend no more than 6% um, uh, in any given year. Um, you know, we might let it rise a little bit above that, but, but not a lot, because to do that makes it unsustainable. One of the concerns from an economic perspective is that as returns have declined, in the marketplace, um, you know, as interest rates have gone effectively to zero, it's much, much harder to earn the kind of return, an 8% return, for example, in today's environment, that would sustain a 5% distribution um, over long periods of time. So what that means is that we, you know, rather than spend more, we actually have to, to, to try and spend less in order to preserve what's there for, for future uh, future generations. Shifting from the endowment to the budget. Mm -hmm. So if, if in a given year, Harvard historically has something like $5 billion of expenses, at a summary level, could you explain where that approximately $5 billion of revenue comes from to cover those expenses? And if the university anticipates about a $750 million loss of revenue in the upcoming year, where would that, what sources of revenue would that decline come from? And could you frame right. how severe of a decline that is? Right. So I, I mentioned the endowment um, represents about 35% of the operating budget in the university, but I would also point out that's not distributed equally over schools. Uh, there are some schools like the Divinity School, which is the oldest school at Harvard. So its endowment has been accumulating for, you know, literally for close to 400 years. Um, the Divinity School draws, I mean, in excess of 80% of its budget from the endowment. And then there are other schools, uh, like the School of Public Health, that may only draw 20%. Um, so it's not distributed equally over, um, over the schools. The endowment constitutes, in the aggregate, about 35%. Uh, gifts for current use constitute another 14, 13, 14%, so almost half of the university's operating budget in either directly or indirectly comes from philanthropy, either current 
or, or prior uh, philanthropy. Uh, then we have tuition revenues. Um, right? um, we have what we call auxiliary revenues, which are room and board, and, you know, parking fees and things like that. Um, then uh, we have research revenues uh, from the federal government and from uh, the private sector, um, which amount to about $900 million. Um, and then we also have um, uh, continuing uh, education as well as executive education revenues, um, which are a significant source of revenue for the Kennedy School, for the business school, uh, for the medical school, and, and others. So if, and then there's a whole bunch of other things. Um, you know, we have revenue on intellectual property and, uh, and, and, and stuff, but those are the major categories of revenue. So if you take a look at the 750 million and you say, okay, where, where does that come from in terms of the loss in revenues? Um, well, first of all, we're expecting net tuition revenue to be down. Net tuition revenue is gross tuition revenue minus financial aid. And we're expecting the demand for financial aid to go way up, okay? Um, and that's what happens in a recession, we just know that. We're also expecting that some schools are probably likely to see more students deferring, um, taking a year off. Uh, so we're expecting some decline in tuition revenue. Um, executive and you know, education has basically gone to zero at this point. And to put that in context, that was the fastest growing revenue stream in our budget. Uh, so, uh, and it's, you know, if people can't come to Harvard, you know, for a short term, executive education isn't going to happen. Maybe able to move some of that online, but we're forecasting precipitous declines um, in executive uh, education. Um, uh, we already re rebated room and board, um, you know, to people. Um, so depending upon whether or not people are in residence or not, um, we won't have, if they're not, we won't have those revenues. And by the way, those revenues um, support uh, and sustain, um, you know, our, our housing system. And the costs associated with the housing system don't go away. Yes, we won't spend money on feeding students if they're not in residence, but we still have to maintain the dorms uh, and, the, and the buildings. So that's another um, loss in revenue. Then philanthropy declines usually in a recession, and we're forecasting a decline there as well. And then there are a bunch of other things. So, you know, the university, if, if you just imagine the Smith Campus Center right now, okay? We have uh, commercial tenants in the Smith Campus Center, all those restaurants that students, um, you know, uh, uh, go to. Um, and they're all in trouble right now. And so the university is, you know, trying to be helpful to them um, and to sustain them during these difficult times. So it's an integration over all of those activities and you add that up and that's what $750 million looks like. The university has pledged to- oh, I, Excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry, Judd, I left out one yes. very important component. And then there's the decline in the value of the endowment. So the endowment distribution probably will drop as well. So. Got it. Thank you for breaking that down. The university has pledged to pay staff through June. It was reported that the decision to include subcontracted workers came after outside pressure. Could you address how Harvard navigated that and the challenges of deciding where to reduce expenditures 
in an unprecedented crisis? So, uh, first of all, we never laid off anybody and we never furloughed anyone. There was a lot of misinformation of people saying that we had announced that we were doing that. We hadn't. Um, you know, one of the uh, first casualties in a time of crisis sometimes is, uh, is factual information and people make assumptions. And especially in the current environment where somebody tweets something and then, you know, I receive a thousand email messages from folks protesting something that we actually haven't done. Uh, so, um, you know, we've tried to, to be uh, thoughtful in, in how we're managing our resources and um, trying to understand uh, how to plan for an environment which we know is going to be different going forward. And right now what we're thinking hard about is we're trying to differentiate what's temporary versus what's permanent in terms of loss of, of revenue. Um, temporary losses we can sort of sustain much easier, but if if we're anticipating, you know, not just a one-year decline, but several-year decline, then we have to find a way to right-size, you know, to match our income with our expenses. Um, and what we have to prioritize in all of this is sustaining our core academic mission. So there are many things that people would like us to do, but, um, you know, in the end, what we can't afford to do is to compromise our ability uh, to support our students, um, as well as uh, to sustain the teaching and research that's necessary in order to ensure that they have um, an excellent um, educational experience. So in the end, that has to be job one. And beyond that, then we see what else we can, um, we can do. In looking at, at you know, what we do longer term, you know, again, if, if uh, there are some people right now who aren't working um, just because certain activities aren't happening, but as soon as we're able to bring people back, we're going to need those people again. So, you know, in some cases, it may make sense to furlough them. Um, if we have to, we'll see. Um, so we're trying to be thoughtful. Um, it, there's a whole series of nested decisions um, that are all clouded by incredible uncertainty because we don't have a crystal ball and to know when people are coming back and when we're going to be able to have people on campus and when students are going to be there. So we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to sort that out. We also operate according to rules that are imposed upon us. So our entire research enterprise is supported by grants. Uh, some of these grants are from the federal government, some are from private industry, and um, uh, we are unable in some cases to charge people to grants who are not working, right? And, and that limits our capacity to, uh, to sustain people. So it's a complicated objective point. With campuses deserted nationwide, most colleges and universities are still deciding if they'll open for in-person classes this fall. Some are planning for the return of students, but many are putting off any final decisions until June or July. Harvard University tweeting Monday, it will be open for fall 2020, but cannot be certain that we will be able to resume all usual activities on campus. 
university has reinstated over and over again its commitment to health and safety first of the students and the overall community, which led to the controversial decision to send uh, students home in order to preserve their safety. But this virus is highly unpredictable. So essentially any kind of in-person sessions uh, come fall uh, would require some level of experimentation. What would need to happen um, in the meantime for the university to feel safe to hold any kind of in-person session? Well, it's a good question. Um, thank you very much. Uh, what we're, where we're beginning in this process is trying to um, uh, restart our research function mm -hmm. in a way. So uh, right now we're a research university where our faculty do not have access to the facilities which they need uh, to do their research. So the easiest thing to restart in some ways are our laboratories. Because people who work in laboratories are used to working under highly controlled circumstances. They're used to working with dangerous materials and subjects. They're used to wearing personal protective equipment. So what to do first is to restart our labs. And that would mean bringing back not just the faculty who work in the labs, but the technicians and the graduate students who are working alongside of them. So that's probably the first thing which we're going to try and experiment with. It will involve social distancing. It will involve people working multiple shifts so that we don't have too much density in a lab. And it will involve testing to make sure that people remain safe. Similarly, we hope to, to uh, restart our libraries and our museums for our, and our archives for our scholars who require access to materials, source materials, in order to do their scholarship. That doesn't mean that the museums and the libraries are going to be open to anybody who wants to go in them, but it does mean that a faculty member, graduate students who are working on their dissertations, doing research, would have limited access, again, under carefully controlled conditions. So that's probably the next thing that will come up, and hopefully around the same time as the laboratories, but we are, we are hard at work on plans um, for that. Then, um, as to, we have students on campus now, um, students living in the residence halls now, these are students who never left because they had no place to go home to, um, or they could not make it home and be sure that they would be allowed back into this country. They are also studying remotely right now, but they are carefully socially distanced. And so we're monitoring that process to see how that's going. And, and then depending upon a couple of uncertainties, one is the status of the virus itself, um, uh, in, in this area of the country. And the second is the availability of testing and the reliability of testing. Um, uh, that will determine how quickly we can bring people back into a residential setting. Um, if I always like to illustrate the relationship between testing and our ability to bring people back by asking people to do the following thought experiment. Imagine we could embed a chip um, a diagnostic chip under the skin in every individual who not only goes to school at Harvard, but who works at Harvard, right? And the chip would tell us um, instantaneously whether or not somebody was infected, right? If we had that, we could bring everybody back almost immediately. Um, and under circumstances that would appear pretty normal, because as soon as we learned that somebody was infected, we could isolate them immediately. And presumably, we would know also who they, they had been in contact with. And so we could do the 
use a technology to um, do contact tracing. So now if you say, okay, we don't have the capacity to test everybody uh, and to test them instantaneously, uh, what if we can only test people once a week? What if we can only test people once a month? Um, that will determine the extent to which we can have people in close proximity or not. Uh, so surveillance testing, the, you know, the chip under the skin, um, allows you to do lots of things. Testing, which is only related to people who are symptomatic, um, allows you to do very little because we know that this virus has a long latency period. It will appear to be most contagious in many cases when they're asymptomatic in the early stages of infection. Right. So, um, and another factor that we have to look at is our capacity to manage a breakout on campus if we should have one. So we need to be able to have the capacity to isolate people um, if they become infected. And that requires us to model and, and, and preserve spaces so that we could move people out of a residential setting and into, um, into isolation if we had to do it. And then there are two other considerations. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a long answer. No, no. How, how do we conduct classes under these circumstances? Because we still have to engage probably in a degree of social isolation or social distancing in classes, which will put a strain on classrooms because, you know, if you have a class of 25 people, you probably need a classroom that accommodates 100 in order to be able to teach them safely within it. Uh, and we don't have that many classrooms. Um, students have to enter and exit the classroom carefully because they can't cluster. They have to maintain social distancing. And then you have to disinfect the classroom each time it's used. So, you know, you're not going to be able to have classes 10 minutes apart in the same classroom because you can't just empty them and disinfect them and then repopulate them. So there are lots of considerations to think about as we imagine what it's going to take in order to bring people back on campus. Of course, it touches on everything possible. So um, we spoke hypothetically about the, the scenario of having a chip under the skin, but some form of tracing will be necessary come fall. What kind of tracing is the university preparing for? Well, I mean, testing and tracing go together. Yes. Right? So, um, we're looking at a number of things. I mean, uh, there are a number of uh, companies that are developing apps, which in effect track uh, people and can identify, assuming everybody has a, you know, a smartphone, can identify who they've been in contact with. Um, it comes at some loss of privacy and we'd have to take a look at how we would manage that. I would point out though that the issue is not just how do we track and trace our, our, our students and monitor them and test them, but we also have to test, monitor, you know, and, and, and track and trace our faculty, our staff, and everybody else that they come in contact with. So, our, you know, our students, you're all graduate students. It wouldn't surprise me if some of you live with people who are not Harvard students. Um, you, pop, you, you go to restaurants um, and engage with people who are not members of the Harvard community. So we need to be cognizant of that, too. Um, and at least have the capacity to monitor what we're doing and how it's impacting the broader community, not just those who are part of the Harvard community. Is there collaboration within universities um, in this planning or is it a pretty much on an individual case basis? 
Great question. We are working um, in collaboration with MIT, Boston University, and Tufts right now. And what we're trying to do is to imagine a number of different scenarios that we literally could test on our various campuses, gather information um, and evidence so that we could generate protocols which would inform not just how we would manage this, but how other institutions would as well. So we're actually approaching this as a research project. Right, and that would give the opportunity to other universities that might not necessarily have the resources that Harvard, MIT, um, U, Tufts, etc. have um, to to open up or um, yeah, correct best extent possible. There has been this question raised that you, the experience of coming to Harvard or going to a university is not just taking the classes, but the in-person experience as well. Do you think the the price of the tuition should reflect that now that everything is being carried online? So, we're well, first of all, we haven't made the commitment yet to go online. Uh, that's a decision okay. that will be made um, later this year. It will be made school by school. Um, and because the situations in the schools are, are quite different. Uh, we, the experience that we, if we are online in the fall and we're, we have to plan to be online in the fall because it's much easier to pivot from online to in-person than the other way around. So uh, we're planning for being online. We'll see if we have to do that. The experience online, if we, if we go that way in the fall, will be radically different than what we have students have experienced this spring. The spring faculty basically had 10 days to switch and they did not plan their courses to be online. And if you take a look at what we've been able to do and what we've learned about through our experience on Harvard X, um, those courses look radically different from what students um, have experienced here. So we would hope that we could offer, um, it would be a different experience, but an excellent experience online. Um, an experience that would be uniquely um, Harvard. Um, we recognize that there will be aspects of it that are different, um, but we're also trying to imagine ways that we could capitalize on those differences. So um, how do we design courses so that students might be able to do field work um, in their hometowns, that they might be able to engage with people in ways that they wouldn't normally if they were on campus. So the faculty are being very creative and we'll see, see how, um, how we can do, but we are committed to offering a first-rate educational experience for our students, um, whether we're online or in person. But right. it will be, even if students come back and are on campus, it will be different. You can expect people to be masked. It will not, we will not have the same, you know, kinds right. of social interactions that students have come to know and love um, right. until we have a virus, until, until we have a vaccine for this virus. Right, right. So either way, the experience of what we're used to just walking in office hours or meeting friends, or it's, that's going to change. Um, and and it, it's very interesting that you mentioned that so many um, people of Harvard community come from various different places. So there's also this opportunity to customize this experience to the location they're in. So that's very yes. interesting to see how that um, develops. Being in, in various different places has its advantages. It has disadvantages for those who rely on the uniformity of the experience, those who come from a lower income um, backgrounds and who, who are facing much higher difficulties. You recognize that. Right. That's, uh, that's a challenge. Yes. 
I, I wanted to ask what are the ways um, that the experience can be as uniform as possible for everybody? Well, we're looking at that. We're, we're looking at strategies to address that. Um, mm -hmm. Involve um, grants or support to students who don't have, you know, access to, uh, you know, good internet uh, connections or the technology. In that, in some cases, we, um, you know, bring people back to campus um, that are uh, are lacking those kinds of, of support locally. And they might live on campus, but still be studying remotely on campus under those circumstances. We'll have to, we'll have to see. And as a final question, if there's something you predict will change permanently, what would that be? Well, this is, uh, my wife had a very interesting observation. Adele thought that the great beneficiaries of this um, experience are going to be professional women. Um, because now that men have been forced to work from home, um, they've come to understand that you don't ne necessarily need to be in an office 60, 70 hours a week in order to be productive. Right. So she said that she believes that um, uh, women are going to have more opportunities in the labor force, especially women of childbearing age that have had difficulty participating in it um, to the degree that they might otherwise want. And that organizations are going to be far more flexible in accommodating um, those who need to work from home and who need more flexible hours in the future. President Bacow, thank you so much. Really thank you, President Bacow. Appreciate, you're very, appreciate it. You're very welcome. One question before I leave. Yes. Where are all you calling from? Cambridge still. Palo Alto. Palo Alto. All right. You got up early. Uh, <laughs> all right. Good to see you all. Stay Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Bye -bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Paloma Strelitz, Zoya Saroy, and Judd Olinoff. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media. And we welcome feedback and guest ideas. Write to us at ideas at the dive .media.